We're going to turn now to three portions of God's Word. First is Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. Song of Solomon 8, verse 4. Hear the word of God. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love, until he please. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I raise thee up under the apple tree. There thy mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love... It would utterly be contemned. And then turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, verses 1 through 5. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. And then finally, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, uh, 1 through 3. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. May God bless the reading of his sacred word. So we're grateful to have Paul Washer bring us God's word. Paul has been a missionary in Peru for, for a decade. He's um, the leader of Heart Cry Missionary Society, which uh, ministers and supports uh, several hundred missionary workers, indigenous workers throughout Africa and Asia and Europe the Middle East, Eurasia, North America, and Latin America. And um, he's blessed 
with four children, uh, Ian, Evan, Rowan, and Bronwyn. And um, I don't think he needs much more introduction. He's, he works a lot with our seminary and recommends it. A number of our students come from his recommendations, so we're grateful for that. And also for Reformation Heritage books. We've been publishing a number of his books, and he's working on several more. So we hope God will bless, continue to bless his ministry in these various areas. Paul, come and bring us God's word. Open your Bibles to Romans. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this day, for this great opportunity to worship before you. As the church, Father, has always needed you, so we need you now. For the sake of your Son that sits at your right hand, Purify and strengthen your church. Make Zion glorious, O God. A praise of the nations. Turn the hearts of your people more and more toward you, toward your throne. Lord, so many words We have lived long enough to know the weakness of our words. But, O God, that your word might prevail, and that your people might be more greatly transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Any man who has preached long enough knows that he is utterly and completely cast upon God. That if God does not move, if God does not help, nothing will ever be accomplished. All good comes from Him and through Him, and the praise of it goes back to Him. You sit here today, like countless other Sundays. I want you to think back for a moment, last Sunday the Sunday before last, the Sunday before last, through the weeks, the months, the years. 
I know that from this pulpit you have heard great truths. What kind of steward have you been of those truths? Have you taken them home with you? Have you left them at the door? Or when you walked through the door, outside were they snatched away like a bird that snatches seed from the asphalt? Have you grown in knowledge that's good? Have you grown in the application of that knowledge? Are you more like Christ? Do you recognize that the pulpit is a very dangerous thing for the one who speaks and the one who hears? Did you know that? There have been times when I've gone to a pulpit with a certain message and I've told the people, for some of you it would be better that you leave right now before I speak. Why? Well, it's dangerous in this way. It's the word of God. If I speak it incorrectly, I will stand before him and give, it, give an account. That, that is terrifying. I don't think men ponder long enough before they get in the pulpit. If I speak to you today something that God has not said, I will be held accountable. So preaching is a very dangerous thing, but listening is a very dangerous thing because to whom much is given, much is required. If I speak falsely today, you will not be held accountable for anything I say. But if what I speak is true, you too on the day of judgment will be held accountable for it. Not only today, but last Sunday and the Sunday before that and the Sunday before that. And some of you haven't been here for decades you will be held accountable for the truth that you've heard. It's not just to be heard. It's to be obeyed. Not only are direct commandments and precepts to be obeyed. But there are to be appropriate responses to the mercies of God. You see, the more that you hear from this pulpit of how great and how good God is then greater requirement is placed upon you to respond, to reciprocate appropriately. And so, preaching and hearing should be carried out with a certain degree of trembling. But right now, even now, are you listening? Do you hear? And so when we look in chapter 12... In verse 1, the word beseech. This is something I've never understood when I've heard preaching that was nothing more than the transference of knowledge. The transference of knowledge is good. It's absolutely necessary. But I want to see something in the pastor and the preacher's voice, in his face. The old man called it an earnestness. You see, I stand before you today, and I'll be honest with you, if this was just a matter of you somehow finding your best life now, I think I would find another profession. But that's not what this is about, is it? Every time a man gets in this pulpit, it's life and death. It's eternal glory and joy unspeakable. For some, and there are some here 
who will pass an eternity in eternal torment. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? Do you hear me? And this is why you see in the Apostle Paul, I believe the greatest mind of Christendom. No one has surpassed him. Everyone is following him, trying to interpret him accurately. So among men, we have the greatest mind. And yet we also see something, don't we? We see this man who is so broken over the message. I've always said that prophets, there's, there's a, in a true prophet, there's always got to be something, a, a bit of madness. You cannot see the apocalyptic without it fracturing something in you. You cannot comprehend the idea of this heaven or hell and the eternal destinies of humans without something going quite strange in your psyche. These are such weighty things, desperate things. And that's why I so love Paul. And that's why we should make him our model because we see this, this mind. And yet we see this man urging, pleading, begging, prodding, weeping. We see the night watch. We see him tired. We see him wore out. Why? Because these are not just weighty matters. They are the weighty matters. The only matters that matter. Nothing else matters. Your bank account, your neighborhood, your car, your clothing, your comfort. None of it matters. In just a few years, old man, you will be buried. Do you not hear me? And some of you will be taken in the flower of your youth. In a few years, people will be in this church mourning your death. On that day, what will matter? Only that which has been carried out in the will of God for the glory of God. That's all that will matter. Will be Christ is all that matters. And so Paul, he, he goes from Romans 1 through, through 11 with this magnificent, the closest thing we have to a systematic theology. It's absolutely astounding. Countless men for over 2,000 years have spent their entire life trying to fully understand those 11 chapters. But when he comes to the end of those 11 chapters, that great theology, he doesn't close the book, does he? He says, I beseech you, I urge you, I admonish you, I beg you, I plead with you, reciprocate, respond. And of course, the first response is faith, throwing away all self-righteousness, every bit of your self-righteousness and throwing yourself upon Christ, falling upon Christ, Christ alone. Christ, your only hope. Christ, your only rock. Christ, your only wisdom, your only righteousness. It's the first response. But then from there, he goes on to the believer. He is speaking. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, brethren. By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That you present your bodies 
You know, in, in, in my tradition, when I was a child going to church, you know, there would be every Sunday these altar calls and rededications and rededications and rededications as though Paul was speaking here with a present tense imperative. Go on continually presenting your body. Well, there is some truth in that. But the idea that Paul has here is quite different. It's that prophetic for once and for all. How long will you continue limping between two decisions? If God is God, serve him. This is aorist tense. This is make a decision. This is come to a decision and stand by it. Once and for all, decide that you are going to offer your life as a sacrifice to him in response to his sacrifice for you. That's what he's saying. Have you ever come to that brutal decision? Have you ever come to that stark, extreme decision? Where you've looked at your life and you've weighed the cost. And the only people I've ever met who's truly done that. It took a while. Because it was like, am I going to lay it all down? Am I going to give him everything? Am I going to take everything, my profession, everything and hand it to him and say, do whatever you want with me. I am yours. I've seen men at times battle for weeks. And I can appreciate that rather than someone just saying yes and going about their life with no change. But men and women who've weighed it in a balance, am I really going to do this? Am I going to to give him everything and trust that if he takes it, it'll be okay? Am I going to give him everything and if he hands it back to me and tells me follow him in that context, am I going to do so? For some of you, you need to hear this. Jesus isn't a part of anyone's life. He is our life. Jesus isn't something good people do on a Christian Sabbath. Now ask yourself, listen to what I'm saying. Review your last week. Look at your life. I can see that it would be very appropriate to come to a church like this to be a secular man. There's dignity here. There's academics here. There's a degree of class here. There's beautiful windows here. Well, this would be an appropriate place for a successful professional person to come. The preaching's quite academic. You could bring everyone here and see that the men are quite intelligent. I believe also quite spiritual. Please don't misunderstand me. But that's not what any of this is about. This is not what the preachers here are about. This is not what the pastors here, the elders are about. This is not about somewhere to go on Sunday. This is about your entire life. That whether you're a preacher or an engineer or a mechanic or a doctor or a stay-at-home mom or whatever you are, it all belongs to Christ. And if you're here, 
It's simply so that you can be strengthened to go out there because you have given your life to him in whatever context and calling and gifting he has placed you. Is this you? Have you ever come to that crucial decision where you say, I submit my life to the sovereignty of God, which is not just a blanket statement, but means I begin to understand his will as it is revealed in scripture and submit my life to it. Are you there? Are you struggling in that? Are you laboring for that? Are you growing in that greater and greater and greater knowledge of the will of God and greater and greater submission to that knowledge? And that's why Paul's saying, I beseech you, there's so much at stake. Hear me. Sometimes as a preacher, I feel like the man who runs into a building and says, the house is on fire. And everyone goes, yes, quite right. Quite right. And I go, no, the house is on fire. Yes, absolutely. And you said it appropriately. I appreciate your grammar. No, the house is on fire. And that's the same way with you. In your life, as a Christian, think a few short years here on this planet and then you stand before him. The Lord of love who gave his life for you. How then shall we live? How will you actually live? He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, your bodies. It's quite unusual that he would say that. I mean, if if this had been written by a 21st century preacher, it would be probably that you present your heart. Your heart. Sometimes when I have had to deal with professing Christians who had given themselves to carnality and I've had to. Check them on it. Their great argument is this. You don't know my heart. You don't know my heart. And my answer is, I don't have to know your heart. Because I can see what you do with your body. You see, when, when we talk about heart or mind in the Old Testament, we're talking about, for lack of a better terminology, the control center Of everything that you are. Everything comes into subjection to this heart. This mind. It's the control center. And so if God has your heart. He has your eyes. He has your ears. He has your hands. He has your feet. He has everything. If you're seated here today and you do not believe because there there is no reason to believe any other thing. If you're seated here today very calmly because you do not believe this building is on fire. You do not believe it's on fire. And that belief, what does it do? It affects your emotions. You're calm. It affects your will. You've made a decision to stay seated. It affects actually what you do. You stay seated. But if in one moment your belief changed, your convictions changed, and you came to understand and believe with all your heart 
that the building was on fire. It would change your emotions immediately. You would go from being calm to something of a panic. There would be sweat on your brow. Your will would change. Your actions would change. You would jump up and flee the building. So Paul is going, he's, he's bypassing the nonsense. And he's saying, the evidence that you have actually offered yourself to him affects every aspect of you. Every part of your life. As a person, it affects what you do with your eyes. It affects what you do with your tongue. It affects what you do with your ears. It affects what you do with your feet and the direction of your life and the hands. The things in which you involve yourself. It affects everything. And it affects then all the categories of your life. It affects your relationship with God. It affects your relationship with your spouse. It affects your relationship with your children. It affects your relationship with the church. It affects your relationship with, with the world. It affects your relationship in finance. It, it affects everything. If you truly believe that we are pilgrims and that we're headed to glory, if you truly believe the greatest price was given to you, then it affects the totality of who you are. Has it done that to you? When I was in seminary, we worked with a lot of, uh, we, well, we worked with the street people. I lived at the street mission. And this friend of mine would do this play every year at the mission in which someone is accused of being a Christian. There's a judge. The man accused is sitting there up there near the bench. And prosecuting attorneys come. To show all the evidence. But in the play. There's never any evidence. And he gets set free. So he's accused of being a Christian. But no one can find any evidence. That it's actually true. It was very powerful. Very powerful. But what about you? What about you? What about you, though? What about you? It looks like there could be times within a few years where some of us are put in that seat and accused of being a Christian. I hope if we're accused of being a Christian <laughs> that the prosecutor has a lot of evidence and there's no defense against the accusation that we actually are. But with you, with you, I'm concerned with you. If you were seated here right now and there was a prosecuting attorney, lay, would he have evidence after evidence? Would he go on for hours? Evidence after evidence. Look at this man's life. He is a Christian. Or would the defense attorney be able to come and say, no, he's not. Look here. Look here. Look here. Look here. And you say, but in my mind, in my heart, I don't care. How does it affect everything around you? And that's what Paul is getting to. He, and he says, 
I beg you, I beseech you. This is not a little thing. All right, they've, they've become Christians. They are Christians. So you would think the begging would be over. It's not. He says, I'm urging you, I'm pleading with you. Now that you know him, now that you understand these 11 chapters, I am begging you, think it through. Really think it through. The Francis Schaeffer thing of how then shall we now live? What will we do? And this is what he asks us to do. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. You know, in the book of Job, in this one thing, even Satan was correct. So Job, in Job, Satan is first allowed to touch many of the precious things and persons around Job. And Job remains faithful. But then Satan comes and says, yes, okay, but let me touch his life. And that right there shows us, there, that's, that's the key, isn't it? That's the precious thing. That's the most precious thing you possess. And only one of them. And so what's going on here? God is saying, not just things, not just time, you, all of you, all of you, all of you, your life presented once and for all as a sacrifice, you. Do you see yourself that way? Can you conscientiously say that that's how you see you? As a living sacrifice. Let me ask you, would others see you? Would others see you that way? Pause is not dramatic. I really want you to think. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. You know, I believe there's two things going on here. First of all, in These are not dead works. This is not just discipline he's talking about. This is a living sacrifice. And to be a living sacrifice, it it is this life you're laying down is a life that has been given to you. I, I can even see in here, even though it's distant, an idea of the vine and the branches. This is a life of communion with him. He has made you alive in regenerating you. You are now in union with Christ. And it is this life He gives you. 
that you're cultivating that life. You're cultivating that that mercy, that strength, that grace, that relationship. You're bearing fruit and it's just all for him. Another way of looking at it is this. It is so much easier to die than it is to live. And that's why I believe in Romans 8, Paul talks about how neither life nor death. You would think he would say neither death nor life, but he says neither life nor death can separate us from the love of God. Because many times life is far more difficult than death. It is to take this life of ours and give it to him. Now, again, as I'm constantly having to tell my children when I teach them this, it's not that you're to be a missionary like your father. It's not that you're to be in the ministry. That's not what we're saying here. What we're saying is that in the in Christianity, there is no sacred and secular. Everything is sacred. If you're a policeman, it's unto Christ. If you're a housewife, it's unto Christ. If you're a doctor, it's unto Christ. If you're a businessman and quite prosperous, it is unto Christ and for Christ and because of Christ. In whatever place he puts you. The greatest thing that should be known about your life is that it is lived out as a sacrifice. And this is such a blessing. This is such an opportunity for you. Why? Because apart from this, what are you? Think of the greatest men in history. Think of the greatest men of this nation. Think of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. Think of whoever you want to think of, Alexander the Great. They're all dead and you don't care. They're all dead and the empires they built are crumbling into dust. But you, you, you get to offer your life for a king who is incorruptible and a kingdom that is eternal. You can fight all these battles, all of you, and then you can go to glory and hang your shield and it will be in a hall that never crumbles. Do you see that? The opportunity that is before you. That's one of the greatest privileges of the Christian life is what? As a friend of mine wrote one time in her dissertation, she said, in the gospel, the lead. What was it? The lead covering on the tomb has been tore off and the grave of our life has been filled with light. There's purpose in everything now. If we lay down our life, if all of you, if all of us. Lay down our lives as living sacrifices. Present our lives to Him and say we will serve our generation. And then be gathered to our Father. Then everything you do is now filled with meaning. Eternal meaning. And eternal reward. And will you sell that inheritance for temporal gravel in the street? Don't do that. God is doing such a work in this church, such a work in the seminary, in the publishing company. And he's brought you here in this church. Do you realize the opportunity you have to affect the nations? All of you. All of you. You should be having meetings constantly with elders. Going, okay, here I am. This is what I am. What can I do? 
This is what I am. How can I use my profession? How can I use my mind? How can, what do I need to do? I want to be a part of something that is absolutely changing the world. And I can tell you something. There's more missionary activity in the world today than ever. And most of it's nothing more than smoke and mirrors. So when I say God is using this place, believe me, it's not flattery. But all of you, all of you should be using all your time, resources, talent, everything you have without neglecting the commands of family and other things. You should be using all this to gain the nations. Imagine this whole mass of people in this room. All praying, working, laboring, sacrificing, giving to send missionaries, to send books, to teach men from all over the nations to go back and plant biblical. Imagine what's before. Do you see? That's why I started this sermon the way I did. To whom much is given, much is required. I'm not here. You are. Oh, the opportunity before you. This is not a scolding. This is a... Can you not see? Men and women far more noble than you long to see such things, long to be a part of such things, and they were not. But you are. You are. I think people ask me sometimes, Paul, what's the thing that makes you probably most sad? You know what my answer always is? What, what could be? When I look at the people of God, what they could be, what they could do, if they would realize not the task in front of them, but the privilege in front of them. Offer your life as a living sacrifice. Holy. What do you think of when you think of holy? A lot of people commonly define a term with a term. Well, you know what it is. Holy. Well, no. Well, you know, sinless. Well, then what's righteousness? Well, sinless. Well, what's the difference? What is holy? What, what does it really mean to be a holy sacrifice? Does it, does it mean... Sinless, unstained. A little bit of that is a little bit of the definition. The, the Hebrew root is the idea of cut and then separate. God is holy. The, the main idea here is not that he's sinless. That's just one aspect of holiness. Holiness is separateness. If you ever hear someone say, keep God number one, uh, that's a silly statement. That's assuming God is in a box with everyone else and he's at the top of the list. That's not the way it works. You see, God is not number one in a long list of other things. He's number one in a category where there is only one. He's in a total, complete, distinct category. He's not like us just bigger. He's not like us just better. He is God. 
He is utterly and completely separate. The difference between him and his creation is not simply quantitative. It is qualitative. For him to be holy means he is completely distinct and separate from all other beings in every imaginable category. And that's where sinlessness comes in. When you talk about his his relationship to sin, he is a completely other category. It's not just that he's better than us. And what does it mean for us to be holy? Yes, it means to to reject those things that oppose his commands, those commands that guide us into righteousness. Yes, it means that, but it means far more than that. Holiness means to be separate unto God. It is to have God in the heart with no competing loyalties. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It is an unalloyed heart. It's for you, sir, for you, ma'am. For you, young person and child, to look at yourself, to look in the mirror and say, I am separate unto him. My love is unto him. My loyalty is unto him. Everything is unto him. In whatever category he places me, whatever calling he gives me, whatever gifts he affords me, it's all unto him. So that in the Christian home, even the pots and pans, according to the prophet, are holy. Do you see that? To offer your life in that way. It's not this that you keep all the rules, even though keeping the rules is important. But that you belong to him. You belong to him. Everything belongs to him. He says, a, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable The word acceptable here is an absolutely correct translation. But it can also carry more meaning in the Greek than what even our English allows. It's it's not just, oh, that's acceptable. But that's well-pleasing. It's delightful. Now, I want you to think about something. Giving your life... For a man, that's not reasonable. That can be cultish. Giving your life for a group, that's not, that can at least not be reasonable at times. But to give your life to Him, that's the only reasonable thing you can do. That's the only reasonable thing response it's insane to embrace Christianity especially as it would be laid out in the Westminster or in the 1689 that kind of Christianity it would be insane to say you embrace that confession without it radically transforming your life I mean, the weightiest matters of weighty matters are found there, aren't they? That demand great, well, that have great implications. Life-changing implications. Again, Jesus isn't something you add on to an already good life. 
Jesus is your life or he's nothing. Now, I want to look at something that is, I think, how do we get there? I mean, how, how do we see the giving of our lives, all of it? How do we get to the point where we see that it's the only reasonable thing we can do? And what's the motivation for it? The key here is, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Now, here I think it is in Greek, it's the New Testament, but never forget, a lot, well, the Old Testament's being pulled over, isn't it? We have a Jew here writing, and we have a plural, which is very, very important. So when we, when... In Hebrew, when you want to say water, like a little pool of water, singular. Plural is big water. When you see not mercy, but mercies. It's like Paul is taking a diamond, the most exquisite and well-cut diamond, and he's For 11 chapters, he's been holding it up. And I don't know if you've ever seen a diamond like that. But you hold it up and you turn it. And at times you you realize, I'm looking at something singular. And yet I'm looking at something that seems far beyond the singular, plural. Looking at one thing, I'm looking at many things because... All those cut facets in that diamond, light is hitting it, hitting them. And as he turns that diamond, you're just seeing every kind of color and light and view. And you stand in awe of it. That's what Paul's been doing for 11 chapters. So what he's saying with this therefore is this. I have held up for you for 11 chapters This glorious picture of the mercies of God in Christ. And in the basis of that, on the basis of what I have shown you. Now, give your life. It's the only reasonable thing you can do. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, first of all, this is not just an isolated event. Go for just a moment and just look quickly at Ephesians 4. Verse 1, the first three chapters of Ephesians is probably the deepest theology of the Apostle Paul going into the mind of God, talking about foreordination, predestination, God's eternal plan, all of it in Christ. It is phenomenal literature. A thousand theologians and a thousand Greek scholars could come together for a thousand years and they would not exhaust those three chapters. By the end of it, they would all bow their head and say, we have not even reached the foothills of this Everest, no matter how much they wrote. And then Paul, after laying that out, he says, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord... He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you again that you walk worthy of the vocation wherein ye are called. This is again, how then shall we live in light of the mercies that I have just revealed to you, Paul says. 
Now here's what I want you to learn. I'm going to have to bring this to a close. We're not going to get to verse 2. I'm sorry. Here's Here's what you need to see. And I say this all the time. I say it to my children. I say it almost everywhere I preach. Where do we find the strength for this? There are possibly some of you sitting here who are not affected a bit at what I'm saying. You brush it off as fanaticism, possibly. But most of you, most of you are saying yes. With my mind, Brother Paul, I agree. But I find so many other factors working in my life, distractions and a weakness. Well, first of all, no matter who stands in this pulpit, we can all stay that say the same. But there's a cure. There's a cure. There's a holy remedy. There's a thing to help us. First of all, And most importantly, all the saints that I have known in my four decades now that had an extraordinary love for God, resulting in an extraordinary life of sacrifice unto Him, all of them had one thing in common. They had simply seen a greater vision of Christ. This is the task of the preacher and this is the task of the pew. This is the task of the exposition, public exposition, and this is your great task every morning when you open the Scriptures. A greater and greater view of the mercies, the loving kindness, the love of God in Christ. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. The love of Christ constraineth. Paul is not saying, my love for Christ constrains me, compels me, pushes me on. But he's saying, Christ's love for me. Sometimes I have to work out problems going back to the foundations of theology. And I would recommend that you do the same. Because you see someone like the Apostle Paul and immediately you're thinking he's extraordinary. He's an extraordinary individual. But I go back theologically to this. He was born of the same stock of Adam as I am. So there we're equal. He had no advantage. Second, I was regenerated with the same spirit. Therefore, what makes the difference? Was it some sort of divine fatalism that gave him more than me? What's going on here? No. He saw more of Christ. So, 
I don't try to make myself now more devoted. I don't try to, to kind of screw myself up or wind myself up like a toy soldier because I find out that I run out in about three days. My goal over the last more than two decades has been just greater glimpses of Him. Greater glimpses of Him in Scripture. Using in prayer. Um, my friends have helped me. My contemporary friends have helped me. My ancient, my good friend, John Flavel. My wonderful friend, Isaac Ambrose. My darling, Charles Spurgeon. Just the more you see Him. And the more you allow yourself also to strengthen your candle in the light of other men. The more you see what God has done for you in Christ. You are constrained. You're constrained and compelled. And it's amazing what that can do. And so I could thrash you. I could whip you. Could drive you. But that's how you drive cattle. That's not how you lead sheep. I know something far more powerful than the lash to drive men and women and young people. It is a greater and greater vision of Christ. Now, I want to warn you. You are in a church where that, in an extraordinary manner, is attempted every Sunday to show you Christ. You are in a tradition, a long history, that relishes pictures of Christ. You are privy to every manner of literature that would cry out to you, look at Christ. So now, church, if you were to be thrown from here to another state or something, I would have to ask you this question. If you can't run with footmen here, how are you going to run with horses out there? Take advantage of everything that is given you here. You must. Because to whom much is given, much is required. And go hard after Christ. In discussions with my children, now that some of them have grown, I have heard this kind of thing. They know that their dad is not a perfect man. They know that there were times when dad would have to come to them and say, I'm, forgive me for my impatience or forgive me for my neglect. But there's one thing that they've affirmed. We have seen, Father, that you desire to be Christ's man. That you live and die for him. That you think him in the morning and think him in the afternoon. That you're like driven 
Men, what do your wives see in you? What would they say drives you, owns you, compels you? What would your children say? Well, he's hard after success. He's hard after money. He's hard after the fine thing or finer things of life. Or would they say he's hard after Christ? If dad's panting, it's because he's running after Christ. I beg you, I beseech you by the mercies of God. As the prophet said, how long will you limp between two opinions? If Baal is God, then serve him. If Christ is God, then serve him. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, I pray. Oh, dear God, raise up. I know there are so many men here who serve you. But if there are any, be any that are dormant. Any that are distracted. Any that are not like the men of Issachar. They cannot see the times and the privilege and the opportunity that's before them here. Oh God, awaken old men to still wear themselves out unto death. Awaken middle-aged men to give what strength they have left to your cause in this place. Awaken young men. Awaken young women. Wise older women. That this be a body, Lord, Ministering to it to itself, but also collectively going forward, realizing that they have in God's providence been given an opportunity to not just be a light to this city or a light to this state or a light to this nation, but a light to the world. Oh, that Lord, the offices of this place would fill up over the next month of men saying, what can I do? In Jesus' name, amen.